In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Um, God willing, today we're going to continue uh, in the book of Nehemiah, uh, chapter 9, uh, 10, and 11, if we have time. Uh, last time, in chapters 7 and 8, uh, there was a census that was done by Nehemiah. Um, again, this part of the book, um, the first half of the book, it was all related to the building of the wall uh, of Jerusalem. Um, but now that the wall has been built, uh, it's the focus is now more going to be about like what are the spiritual activities that are being done uh, by, uh, by the people. And the whole point of the building of the wall was to make a place for the people to worship. Um, and so uh, now we are, we're focusing more on like the worship and what is it that they are going to be, um, to be doing. So um, they did the census of the people. Um, to see who are all the people who are there in Jerusalem. They read the law, Ezra the scribe and the other priests, they read the law for the people, um, and they had this sacred assembly um, for th when, when they were reading, um, and then they all celebrated the Feast of the Tabernacles, which was uh, a feast that would last for one week, where all of the people would dwell in tents to commemorate when they were living in tents uh, during the 40 years they were wandering in the wilderness. Um, so the people are, are, are focused now and their aim now is to restore um, not just the physical walls and the city, like the, 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 the political, the economic um, part of Israel, but to also restore um, the religious um, in, in, in the worship of God um, again. Okay. So uh, we'll start in chapter 9 it says now on the 24th day of this month the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dust on their heads so it was a day of repentance um, it was a day uh, where, where they were mourning over their sins then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers so the group of people that were there it was a mix of people there were some people who were uh, Israelites, so Jewish origin. And there are also some people who were foreigners, people who lived in a, from other countries, other nations. Um, and, and this was, um, you know, this was expected because for a long time, um, the, the people who were living in Israel uh, were a mix of uh, the remnant of those who were left after the exile, uh, along with uh, the Samaritans, people who were living uh, in Samaria. Uh, uh, where the northern kingdom of Israel used to be, um, Assyrians who were living in various places. At this time still, um, Israel is still a province of the Assyrian Empire. So, so there is a lot of people. Okay? But when it came time to focus on the, the religious worship, the Israelites, okay, they separated themselves from the rest of the people um, and they sought to restore their identity, not only as a country, um, but as like a, a people of faith, right? Um, and so uh, when, when, when it came time to, to worship, when it came time for repentance and confession, they separated themselves, okay? And even in the book of Ezra, um, which was written uh, about the events that happened before this, um, it says this, it says, when these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land. So he's saying, in order for us to maintain uh, like a pure faith and a pure worship, right, not to be intermingled with the people. Again, the, the, the reason why all of, the, uh, all of the, the exile had happened to begin with is because the people had um, fallen into idol worship as a result of the influence of all of the other people, all the other nations that were around them and intermarrying with them and being exposed to them. So that influence infiltrated Israel, and so they began to do the same thing as the other nations, which led to idol worship, which led to God's punishment and the exile. So now having come back again, after all that time in the exile, the 70 years of exile, uh, so it's like, well, we don't want to do the same thing again. We don't want to fall into the same trap again. Um, and so we want to uh, make a distinction between us and them. Also in Ezra chapter 10, verse 3, it says, Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. 
So, of course, God had commanded um, back in Deuteronomy and I think elsewhere as well um, that they that the, the men, the Israelite men, should only marry from among their own people and not from uh, the, the, the foreign nations. Again, for fear of the, um, the infiltration of the pagan ideas into Israel. So the people are making a commitment now. They're saying we have to separate ourselves, right, in order to... To, to, to purify ourselves. So what's interesting is that um, in the Old Testament, because God knew the weakness of the people, right, he told them completely separate yourself. Like, like Gentiles were considered to be unclean in the Old Testament. Like you couldn't eat with a Gentile. You couldn't go visit him in his house. Actually, when, when Peter went and visited Cornelius in his house, right, he first had to be convinced that it was okay to do so by the vision that he saw with God bringing down all of these unclean animals and declaring them to be clean. So that convinced Peter to go. Um, but even after his visit with Cornelius, the other Jewish people, they were like in shock. Peter, how did you go and eat in the house of these unclean Gentiles, right? And this is, this is again, why God declared them to be unclean. Not because there's something wrong with them as, in, as people. They were still created in the image of God just like everyone else, right? And God desired their salvation just like anyone else. But he knew that if they intermingled with them, in this stage of their development, in this stage of their faith, then they would be confused, right? And so this is and this is exactly what happened. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for one-fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord, their God. Okay, so you see here that they would read the word, and when they knew the word, then they felt convicted of their sin because they saw that what they were practicing and how they were living were contrary to the law of God, which then led them to confess, to repent and confess of their sins and to worship God, like to make a recommitment again to God. And this is kind of like the repentance cycle is we, we, we remind ourselves of what God wants us to do when we examine ourselves in light of what God wants us to do, we feel convicted. We feel like, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing right. And so my conviction leads me to repent, meaning internally inside of myself, I, 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 I make a choice to turn away from the sin and I confess my sin, right? Like to my father of confession, I confess my sin and I recommit myself again to the worship of God, right? And so, and every time that we fall, we go through the same cycle, the same process again to recommit um, ourselves. Then Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shenani stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. So these were the Levites. Okay, so um, these were the ones who were there helping Ezra uh, in, in the reading of the law and helping to interpret. So they, they, they went and they divided up the people into groups so that they would explain to them everything that they were reading, right? And as we mentioned before, um, a lot of the people didn't understand Hebrew. <laughs> a lot of the people didn't understand Hebrew. And so um, they would translate it into Aramaic for them in order for them to understand. <laughs> More names. <laughs> And the Levites, Joshua, <laughs> Kadmiel, Bani. <laughs> Sorry, <it> just <laughs> after reading the names, it's not. <laughs> I, I can't read the names, but just the names. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. <coughs> And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hadijah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. So here they are recounting all uh, the history of Israel, 
with God. And this is to connect themselves to the historic Israel. You know, so to make themselves understand and realize that they are the same people, right, that God brought out of Egypt, the same people who um, God had chosen uh, Abraham, even before Egypt, right? That uh, God chose Abraham to be their ancestor, to be the father of all of the nations, to go and travel from Ur of the Chaldeans and took him to Canaan in order for him to dwell. Like, number one, a lot of the people wouldn't even know what the history was, so they're, they're reading the history. Uh, and then two, they're realizing, hey, this is us. Like, this is, this is who we are. Um, again, when we go back and we see God's faithfulness, right, there is a, there is a single uh, lineage, right, which includes the Christians, right? All of this was, of course, in preparation for in the New Testament um, and all of the church. So we connect ourselves also with this history and all the work um, of God. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words, for you are righteous. These are all of the peoples that were living in the land of Canaan, which became Israel, right, from the beginning. These are all the people that um, God commanded the Israelites to destroy and to take their land um, uh, when they entered into the promised land. Yes. No, I don't think so. This is a different uh, name. Yeah. What does Gergis in Arabic mean? Farmer. Oh, because it comes from George. Yeah, so George is two words, geo and erg. Geo means the earth, like geology. Erg, for anyone who is like studies physics, it's one of the units of work like the joule. Joule is the more common unit of, or no, that's energy. Um, erg and, what are the units of work? It's been too long. No, that's power. Of work. Is it joules? Okay, yeah, joules. So joules is in the metric system, and erg is in the U.S. system, or the British system. So erg means work, right? Erg means work. And Geo is Earth, so the worker of the Earth is George. So yeah, Gergis is the, the, the Arabic name, or the, I guess the Coptic name for uh, George. Yeah. So anyone named Gergis should be a farmer. Um, and you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea. Did we read this, or did I skip it? Yeah, we didn't read this. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, against all the people of his land. You knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land and their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a, with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. Again, all of these things that are recounted like in the books of um, Exodus, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of your servant Moses. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, the manna, and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst, and told them to go in to possess the land, which you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. What's interesting about this, does this like recounting of the history of Israel remind you of any other time where this was done in the book of Acts? Not Peter, St. Stephen, right? So when Stephen, right before he was stoned, um, he the reason he was stoned is because he spoke all about the history of Israel, but from the perspective of um, God's faithfulness, but Israel's apostasy, right? Like, like God is faithful in all these ways, and but Israel was 
disobedience in all of these ways. And you're the ones who killed the prophets and you're the ones who did all these things. And he's saying this specifically because the Pharisees were so uh, like married to the idea and proud of the idea that they are the, uh, the descendants of Abraham, right? Meaning we are the descendants of all of these people. And so we consider ourselves to be the special people of God simply because of our lineage, right? We are the, 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 the sons of Abraham. So St. Stephen's like, point of his kind of histor historical retelling is, yeah, but the, the, the people who are descendant of Abraham, they were disobedient to God, right? So why are you so proud to be like their descendants? Like what's so great essentially about you, the Jewish people, right? The reason that you are the chosen people of God is because God chose you not because you were so great, not because you had some special characteristic or attribute or you're better than other people, is because God chose you. And so because he chose you, you were made worthy to be his children, not because you had some special characteristic or some special defining property, you know, that made you better than anyone else. So here, when they're reading the, the, the book of the law, they are looking at it from both sides. They are saying, look at all of the good things that God has done and look at all the way that we have improperly acted toward him, not being thankful for the things that he has done, but instead been disobedient to him. Okay, so this is now he's saying, but they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Okay? So so they're highlighting first God's goodness, and then their own sin, and then God's mercy, that even though the people didn't do what they should do, he was what? Abundant in kindness, slow to anger, did not forsake them. Okay? And this is referring to Numbers chapter 14, where it says this. It says, And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to the land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. So this is what they said when they said, but they hardened their necks and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. So once they concluded, after they were had left Egypt and they saw um, all the, the struggles that they faced during the 40 years in the wilderness. They saw the, the, you know, the, the, hu the hunger and the thirst. They saw the other nations that were there, and they were worried about them to be killed by them. They had reached the point where they said, you know what, we're going to appoint a leader. Okay, of course, at the time, who was the leader? At the time, it was Moses, right? He was their leader. So they said, well, no, we are going to appoint a leader, right? And he's going to lead us back to Egypt again, right? So they had reached that point of wanting to go back to Egypt. So this is what it's referring to here. Even when they had made a molded calf for themselves and said, this is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocation. So that's what happened with Aaron and the people while Moses had went up to receive the Ten Commandments. They were at the foot of Mount Sinai making this golden calf, worshiping it, saying, this is the God that brought you up out of Egypt. Um, and were great provocations, yet in your manifold mercies you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. So even, and again th they're highlighting here, that even when the people were disobedient, not only did God have mercy, but he continued to serve them. Like he continued to give them good things. You know, sometimes we think that um, like when we sin against God, that means God is going to bring calamity on us. God is not going to help us in our life. God is going to bring bad things that are going to happen because this is what we deserve. Well, certainly it's what we deserve. Um, but it doesn't mean that that's the way God operates. It doesn't mean that's the way that God does things. And if God allows suffering in our life, it's not because God is just like taking revenge on us out of his wrath. It's because he wants us to return to him. And he wants us to return to him not because we add anything to him, but because when we return, then we have salvation. We have eternal life, and he loves us, and he wants us to have eternal life. So he will do things that are necessary for our eternal life, not because he is just angry with us that we have done contrary to what, you know, he said. Like, kind of like, 
Sometimes parents, when their children disobey them, they get angry for prideful reasons. Like they get angry, it's like, how dare you disobey me? Don't you know who I am? I'm your parent, you have to listen to me, and so on. Like, like the source of the, the punishment that maybe comes from the parent to the child uh, might be uh, selfish in some way. Might not be always designed to, uh, to maximize like the benefit or the well-being of the child, but maybe is more about the kind of the, the pride of the parent being hurt and being, being harmed by the disobedience, right? But this isn't the way that God works, right? God is always doing things that are s for our benefit and for our good, even when they are bring kind of some kind of suffering. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. So, so again, God continued to be faithful in bringing them food. Um, you know, even the Passover, you know, like, like the Passover was instituted when? The 10th plague. So right at the time when they were getting ready to leave Egypt. So God told them at the time to commemorate this event every year from the very beginning. He told them that. But even that, which they had just experienced, they had just seen the faithfulness of God. They had just seen how God saved them from the Egyptians and from slavery. But even the Passover was not something that they uh, celebrated at all during the 40 years in the wilderness, right? They didn't. Um, it was only later on when they entered into the promised land that they began to celebrate. So, so like the people were constantly disobeying God, even from the very beginning, and yet God continued to support them. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, the land of the king of Hezbon, the land of Og, king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. So even while, again, they were always grumbling, but yet you granted them victory over the enemies that they met in the wilderness during those 40 years, and you were faithful to bring them to the promised land, which is the, s the land that you had promised Abraham long, 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 long ago when you brought him from Ur of the Chaldeans to Haran, to Canaan, and, and you told him this is the land that, that your descendants will inherit. So finally they actually entered into that land hundreds of years after that. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Okay, so once they entered the land, they experienced all the fullness of the land. And again, uh, this fullness of the land, God had intended for them to experience before. Like not, there wasn't supposed to be a 40 years they were supposed to be, we go straight from slavery, from Egypt, straight to the promised land. That was the plan, right? It is only because the people didn't trust God's plan that they had to suffer through the 40 years in order to come back to the exact same place that they would have been from the beginning. Um, and, and we spoke before about, like, again, how like this could be representative of how the, the failures that we have, the mistakes that we make in our life, um, cause us to, to miss out on something but god can bring us back to it again right though we have to suffer um, maybe the consequences of our own actions but god can still bring us back to what he wanted and what he intended for us from the beginning nevertheless they were disobedient and rebelled against you cast your law behind your backs and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself and they worked great provocations so even then uh, after they entered into the land, the people started to disobey, right? And so the, the, the constant thing that we see throughout all of the Old Testament is like the goodness of God and the disobedience of man. 
Like this is um, a theme that keeps repeating again and again. And, and so now all these people who have read the law are like re reciting it. They're like, okay, we, we understand this now, we believe this now, and this has now been incorporated into their prayer. Like having now understood the reality of their history, of who they were, of who their ancestors were, they are now bringing all of this to God in kind of like a realization of, of all that has happened and what brought them to the point that they are. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them, and in the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. So again, this could be like the time of the judges, where when the people disobeyed, God allowed them to be overcome until they repented, and then he brought them deliverers, the judges, to lead them back um, and destroy their enemies. But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. The cycle would keep repeating. Therefore you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. So even though God gave them many warnings, all throughout, actually, God gave them many warnings, um, and yet they did not heed his warnings, right? For instance, when um, the, during the time of Samuel the prophet, when the, the people wanted a king, and they looked at the nations around them, and they said, we want a king like the nations around us. Why is it that they have a king and we don't have a king? And so God told them, okay, I'll give you a king, but keep in mind that when you have a king, He's going to force you to pay taxes. He's going to force you to the draft. So you're going to have to serve in the military. He's going to tell you to do all these kinds of things that you don't want to do. So just be aware that if you seek having a king like the other nations, this is what is going to happen. But they shrugged their shoulders. They stiffed their necks. They stiffened their necks. They wouldn't hear. And they said, no, we want what we want. Give it to us. And so God complied and gave it to them. <coughs> Yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets. Yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. So after many generations of this kind of cycle happening again and again and again, right? And after God sending prophet after prophet to them in order to uh, warn them, he finally gave them into the hands of the people of the lands. And this is the exile, right? So when they were exiled. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God gracious and merciful. So they still see the mercy of God even in the midst of such a calamity. And this is, takes a lot of faith because sometimes when a person is experiencing um, a lot of suffering, and especially if that suffering is their own doing because of their own wrong choices, they forsake God and they see that God is their enemy. Whether God is their enemy because they feel like God hates them or whether they, they hate God but or both, God becomes very distant from them because they feel like I have, I have put myself in or God has put me in a situation where I cannot return, right? I cannot be restored again. If we look at the example of the prodigal son, when he was in a state away from his father, having ruined his life. And now he was like, what should I do? And he felt ashamed to go back to his father as a son and say, you know, I have sinned. Please restore me again. So he said, maybe the best I could do is return just as a hired servant. Right. Um, the, we, see, we look at someone like Judas, for instance. Judas, even though he felt remorse for having betrayed Christ, the idea of him returning and confessing his sins and that God would accept him again, this wasn't in his mind. He says, no, I, because I have failed, because I have done wrong, there is no way for me to return again. But these people, even as they are now living in the exile, having suffered and experienced all the consequences, which God clearly warned them about for hundreds of years that was going to happen if they didn't change, now having experienced it, and, and having lived it in the exile, they are still seeing that God is gracious and merciful. Instead of seeing him as, you hate me, 
instead of seeing him as you are the cause of this, instead of seeing him as I hate you because of what you've done to me. No, they, 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 they see that God has been merciful and good to them all along, and they're the ones who have been uh, rejecting him all along, and yet God is still wants to reconcile with them. God still wants them back again. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, who do not let all the trouble seem small before you, that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Neither our kings, nor our princes, our priests, nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies, with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom, or in the many good things that you gave them, or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Okay, so, so they, they are still, you know, along the same line of, of reasoning, saying, we are the ones who have completely failed you. Our leaders have failed you. Our fathers have failed you. Our priests have failed you. We have not kept your law. We have, we have lived sinfully. We have rejected you. We have, uh, you know, cast aside your commandments. Um, we have not served you as we should, right? Even though you gave us so many good things, even though you gave us a large and rich land, even though every, all of this we have not um, turned from wickedness. What's interesting here also is you see like the genuine repentance that has come from to these people and it's come from what it's come from an act of mercy right like god took them who deserved the punishment that they received and he brought them back from the punishment he brought them from the exile he brought them back to their land the act of mercy is what would brought repentance you know sometimes people think that what will bring repentance is is continual perpetual punishment right like i'm going to keep punishing you and keep punishing you and I keep punishing you until at some point i feel like the punishment is enough but but that that the, the, that that somehow the, the the perpetual punishment is going to bring um about a change but what happened in this case and i'm not i'm not saying that's never the case i mean in some cases it is but but here in this case what brought the repentance was um the the act of of undeserved mercy that god gave to the people right once they came back to the land and they read the law and they realized that all that had happened to bring them to the point that they were they realized that we are the ones at fault and god is not to be blamed for what is it that he had done and out of his goodness he has brought us back even though we haven't done anything to deserve to be back. Like, we didn't do anything. It's not like, you know, kind of just like, you know, um, St. Paul, he says, you know, that Christ was incarnate and he died for us while we were still sinners. He didn't wait for us to achieve a certain level of righteousness in order to deem us worthy for him to come and save us, right? The same is true here. It's like these... Uh, Israelites who were living in Persia, right? They hadn't done anything to reach a certain level of righteousness in order for God to say, okay, now is the time for you to return. He did it completely out of his own mercy for them, not in reaction to an act of righteousness that they have done. And because of that, when they returned and they read the law and they understood all that had happened to lead them up to that point, they, they, they recognized that they deserved the punishment and they deserved what happened to them and what's happening to them now, which is God bringing them out, is like an, an, like an undeserved act of mercy. And that mercy is what turned their hearts as what made them repent because they saw God's goodness that they didn't deserve. So there are times where punishment can bring repentance. But there's also times where mercy can bring repentance. Um, and in this case, definitely, um, God gave mercy. Yes. Okay, I don't, it's not really a question, but it's a concern. Um, when the people, okay, so what it took for them to come to this repentance was the reading of the law, right? Because everyone, from their point of view, I was born in captivity, right? And I, I've never enjoyed this God, right? 
but now I, you know, so I, I don't have any reason to hold on to God. But if I look back and read the law and I read the history and I see the things from God's point of view and my, my father's and what my father's did, then there is no denying God's mercy, right? Which is what you're saying. Now, my concern is that, okay, for people who are very far from God at b because they were born in a society that is far from God and so on, how, what what it would take for them, t and maybe sometimes they, 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 they will blame God for anything bad that's happening, right? What it would take for them to realize or to repent as was the case with the Israelites is a big picture, right? Is, is to understand, okay, w you know, I was watching the today this soccer player who was complaining ab against God, grumbling against God because she got injured in a game, but she never, you know, sh in her life, she never actually followed God or anything, you know? So it's like, well, look at the rest of your life and don't, don't, don't look at this one incident and say, so that was what I was kind of screaming at the phone. Like, you need to look at the thing in a big picture, right? It's not a one event thing. How do you get people to leave themselves, right? To to think about things from a, and it's not my job to get people to think that way, right? But, uh, but I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking from a point of view of like, as a Christian living with most people around me, in that camp of like, I don't know anything about this God of yours, right? And he sucks because everything in the world sucks and blah, blah, blah. How do you get them to look at things from a big picture, to look at God's history and to get them to that point where they can recognize his compassion? It's a very easy question, huh? <laughs> <laughs> does, anyone s does anyone have any input they want to say before I say anything? I actually think it's really hard <laughs> um, because I feel like if you already start from the standpoint that everything bad is because of God, then everything good is just, I feel like the conclusion is that everything good is just chance, right? And he's only here causing the bad parts. So they could recognize all the good, but I don't know if they can connect that to him being good. Like, I think that's the missing part is they don't know that he is good. Right. And so good is what good is status quo. Right. That's baseline. And anything bad is him bringing it down or at least not preventing that to add on to the question. Was that adding to the question or that's a great? <laughs> um, look, I think there's no one size fits all answer. Right. It depends on each person has a different background and a different reason why they might not believe. There are really people who are very maybe academically minded, scientifically minded, um, where they where what they truly need to see is some kind of scientific evidence for God. And what I mean by scientific evidence is, like for instance, right now nowadays, more and more scientists are acknowledging that the universe is so finely tuned for life, and finely tuned not just for life, but for the existence of matter um, that no, it would be so unlikely for any random universe to have such characteristics to allow for the existence of matter and stars and life that this is why you'll hear now many people pushing for like the multiverse theory saying, oh, well, there has to be an infinite number of universes in order for one of them to have, by chance, been able to have been you know, come into existence with the right combination of of factors in order to allow all of this. And we just happen to be in it. Um, but of course, there's no evidence for multiverse at all. It's just a complete fabrication. So there are more and more now scientists that are, that, that are having to face the fact that there is design in the universe. They don't call it God, but there's design. And, y and you can't get around design. Like, that there... You can't get around the idea that there seems to be some kind of purpose. More and more people. So if you have a person like that, for instance, what is it that would get them to more consider the idea of intelligent design or the possibility of God? It's through studying and through learning and through, you know, um, 
analyzing the world around us and kind of like, you know, in the Psalms where it says, like the heavens declare the glory of God. And that's truly what that is. It's like the more you understand the creation, the more you understand the reality, the more you can't get around the idea that there is design. Like it, it's, it just pops out everywhere, especially in human life or a different life. Like you look at the cell and you look at the way it works and all that. Like there's design everywhere. So there are some people who maybe they're the thing that's missing for them to acknowledge or consider the idea of God is purely academic, right? There's a group of people. There's another group of people who, even though they might give different reasons as to why they don't believe in God or because they think it's delusional or because it's, there's no evidence for it, really what's driving them is suffering. That there is suffering, and how is it we can reconcile the existence of suffering, right, with the existence of God? Now, the, the God that they are considering, whether he exists or not, when they say that, is a God that they have fabricated. So they say, if I were to imagine that there is a universe, there is a God of all creation, I would imagine him to have certain characteristics. And one of the characteristics is he wouldn't allow suffering to happen, right? And because I see suffering happening, that means God doesn't exist. And certainly that God doesn't exist. The God that doesn't allow suffering doesn't exist. Like that's a very rational and true statement because the, the moment you see suffering, there can't be a God that, that doesn't allow suffering to exist because he's clearly not here, right? So trying to pretend like that God exists, he doesn't exist. So, but let's look at what the Bible says. So if we say that there is a religion called Christianity and Christianity claims that there is a God, what does the, Christ the Christian God look like? What does he say about himself? He says nowhere at all that he will prevent suffering. He tells us what the source of suffering is, and he says actually the source of suffering was man, not God. That man's decision to disobey God is what brought suffering. When God created us, he created us in a state with no suffering. So who actually brought suffering into being? It wasn't God. It wasn't God. It was man. It was man's disobedience to God that brought suffering, okay? Then if you say, okay, well, if God loves us now, okay, then shouldn't he short-circuit that? Shouldn't he prevent the suffering from happening if God is here now and he loves us and we talk about his mercy and we talk about how, you know, like he wants to save us and all this? So sh shouldn't he stop when I'm about to suffer? Well, again, you have to, like, think about what are the ramifications of that? If God were to stop other people from hurting me, right, who maybe are going to hurt me, then that means he is going to cancel their free will. And if God is going to cancel their free will, he's going to cancel my free will. And if he's going to cancel my free will, that means that like, I'm not actually like an autonomous person. I am just like a robot, right, that is doing things because I've been programmed to do them or I've been forced to do them against my will, right? So the the... The, the person who is trying to comprehend God and his existence in this world has to look at it from uh, like, like the, the perspective of where did suffering come from and also like where is the ultimate mercy and justice and peace manifested. And it's not in this world. Because when you see, when you look at it from the perspective that this world is everything, then there is no justice. You cannot conclude that by the, by the end of any person's life that they will have definitely um, gotten justice for themselves, that they will definitely have gotten good things. No, there are some people that live in pain their entire life. Even though they are good people and even though they help others and even though they do this, so where is the justice, right? But if you see the justice in, in the terms of all, of all of existence, which goes beyond this life, then you see things differently. Right, you 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 start to look at things in a different way, but if you try to convince someone that God is good while only looking at the events of this life, I don't think you can convince someone God is good with that alone. You you need to say no, but there is an eternal life, and that eternal life there is eternal enjoyment, right? There is eternal rest. There is eternal peace. There is the restoration of all the things that God had intended from the beginning that He created us to be in that we messed up for ourselves. Now, if a person rejects that interpretation and that understanding, of course, I mean, that's, of course, up to them. 
but they will never be able to reconcile the existence of all that we see now with a good God, right? Because you because if, if God created the world the way that it is, well, that's not good. And if there is no ultimate justice and no ultimate good that is going to be set about, then that's also not good. So, so you have to believe both those things, that God in created all good and intended it for good, and God ultimately will restore everything back to good. Then you can say that God is good and that we are just in a temporary phase where God has essentially given us the opportunity to live out our free will as we want um, uh, in this life th that is broken, in this world that is broken. And we are subject to the brokenness of the world, and we actually contribute to the brokenness of the world through our own brokenness. So we, we experience the brokenness of others, and other people experience our brokenness. We experience the brokenness of nature. Like, uh, everything is broken, right? And this is where we are. But while we are in this place, there is hope, and there is possibility of relationship with God still. There is possibility of peace. There is possibility of rest, spiritually, right? But that doesn't mean that God is going to remove all the physical brokenness, that he is going to cancel the physical brokenness and, and, and change it so that we are like living on heaven now because he created a heaven. Like the, the heavenly life that maybe you are dreaming about, why is it that life is not just joy and happiness? Well, he did create that. It's just we're not there yet. We're on our way there. And we believe that we're, it's a matter of time before we get there. And so we look forward and hope to that. And actually a big part of what gets us through the brokenness of this world is the hope that we are getting to there, that we want to get there. So that's a whole other type of discussion that you would have with a person who is confused about the suffering in the world and what does it mean, right? Um, you know, then there's other people who maybe have religious beliefs, but they are not Christian beliefs. So they believe in maybe an afterlife. They believe in a spiritual realm. They believe in something else beyond the material world, but it's not Christianity, right? It's something else. And then you you dig into, okay, well, let's talk about what you believe and and whether it makes sense or not. And a lot of times in a lot of religions, there's a, there is a lot of contradictions or things that are confusing and just don't make sense that really people don't have a good answer to. Um, and you can start to like bring those things to light and present to them, like, what is the Christian view um, to try to help convince them? So I don't know if that answers your question, but yes. Uh, so, like, this whole account, they're going back to the beginning and talking about all of God's goodness, and I feel like the lens of it is very much like, we messed up, God was good, right? We kept messing up, and even more, God was good. And like there's this character in um, The Great Divorce where like she's up in heaven and she won't come out from the trees, right? Like she won't step into the light. And I feel like that's kind of the lens I read this in. Like I'm more focused on our brokenness than his goodness, right? And at some point I'm like, well, if I'm going to remain broken and I'm going to keep falling, then why not just stay down, right? Because might as well get comfortable. Right. And I know like logically, I know that's wrong. Right. Because there's a lot of growth and redemption and the journey and all of that good stuff. But like I also feel like there's a camp of people that like you can explain the abundance of his love and it's overwhelming. Right. Like we can't understand how a person or a being can love like this. Right. Like it doesn't exist here. Right. And it's almost like I feel like we're trained to be in a like we we have to earn love or we have to deserve love, right? And here it's free. Like it's free regardless if you know him or not, right? And how do you wrap your mind, like you can't wrap your mind around it, right? But how do you not stay in fear of that and run towards it? Like this sounds like they're running towards it, right? Like we know we messed up, but we're, we're coming to you, right? We're still going to run to you instead of saying, I'm not like, I don't belong here in this because look at what my father said look at where we are now like we didn't build those walls someone else came and convinced us of this and how do you i don't know like how do you run towards that instead of it being something fearful well i mean when we speak about having faith 
we were speaking about having faith in God's person and his character, right? Not just as in his existence, because maybe a lot of people can believe that God exists, but it's harder to believe that God loves you than to believe that he exists. You know, because you get back to the, the brokenness and everything, like and my own brokenness, right? How is it that I can believe that God is good in this world, or how is it that I can believe that God is going to accept me after I've disobeyed him a million times, that he's going to still have patience with me and accept me again. And this comes from knowing who is the God that we worship, right? Like when they read the book of the law, they read who God is. They saw God's mercy and his goodness, and so they believed that just as he was merciful in the past, he was going to continue to be merciful. And we talk about many examples of people who received the mercy of God, that they didn't deserve it. Um, and so we, we trust, you know, when he says things like, I will remember your sins no more as far as the east is from the west. You know, I have separated your sin from you, though your sins are as red as crimson, I will make them as white as snow. Like these things that we latch on to, to remind ourselves that, yeah, there are people who, who have been even more sinful than I am, uh, and God still forgave them. God still loves them. God still restored them. God still won them to himself, you know. And so we look at those examples and we try to remind ourselves of those things so that we are motivated to continue walking in a life of repentance, you know, because the, 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 the person who accuses us, the devil, who was the accuser, he, he's called the accuser because he's the one who wants us to do exactly what you're saying, which is to just stay down. Um, although in the Proverbs it says, a righteous man falls seven times and gets up again. So if God considers the, the man who sins seven times a day to be righteous, then that means that righteousness has nothing to do with the number of sin, the amount of sin. It's irrelevant. It has nothing to do with how much sin. That righteousness has to do with whether we repent. So we look at things that way because we are poor judges, right? We are awful judges. We, we look at each other and we say, oh, this person, they did this and this and this. And we continue to label them as such. You know, like I always say how, like, we continue to label people like the woman who came and washed the feet of Christ. Like, we call her the adulterous woman because we label her as that because that's what she did. But she's not the adulterous woman. Like, she's the repented woman. Like, she's the righteous woman, right? But we remember the act that was done, and, like, we were like, oh, yeah, we label her with that act just to because that's what we see her as. But that's not what God sees in her. He doesn't recognize her as the adulterous woman, you know, so... So God wants to heal and wants to restore and wants to bring us to himself. And it's a matter of faith to believe that and to ask God to continue to fill us with faith and confidence in his goodness, to really believe in his character. Um, this was, you know, the problem that the Israelites had from the beginning. Because you can imagine that the Israelites, after seeing the ten plagues, no one could doubt that God existed. Like, like you couldn't live through the ten plagues and then they'd be like, yeah, I don't believe in God. No, God definitely exists. And then no one could say that God was a weakling because obviously he did things that are very powerful. So no one could say that God was weak. But what they did say continually over and over again is, yeah, maybe God exists and God is strong, but he doesn't care about me. That's why they kept saying, you know what, why did God bring us out here? He's not good. He, he, he doesn't know what's best for me. He's not good. Uh, if he was good, he, he would have provided for our needs. If he was good, he wouldn't made us to suffer. If he was good, then he wouldn't have done things the way that he did them. And that was their constant complaint about God is that he wasn't good. Not that he didn't exist and not that he wasn't powerful. And so that, I think, is actually the, the greatest, or the most difficult thing to remind ourselves as Christians because we believe in God and we believe that he can do miracles right but is he going to do them with me does he care to do them with me does he you know is the reason that they're not happening it's just we attributed them to being like well God doesn't care like if he cared he wouldn't allow me to suffer this way he wouldn't allow me to continue this way certainly we don't understand why there are times where he chooses to act and other times where he chooses not to and maybe that's part of the difficulty is we know that he can, you know? So it's like if somebody is drowning and there's a person standing on the side of the pool and he just stands there watching, like we would say, you're cruel. 
Like you're not even trying to save, you know? And so maybe we look at God that way. We see him as being the one with all the ability, all the capability to do good and to heal and to change everything to be good, and he doesn't. And so we see him as cruel. Now, I can't say that I understand, like, why he chooses to act in some cases and why he chooses not to. I, I don't know how he chooses to, you know, inter interact with the world in a way that doesn't override free will, in a way that he still honors the free will of people, but at the same time, he's also working for the good of mankind and for individuals. That's beyond me. I, I, I don't know how he chooses that. But to believe that he does choose, to believe that he knows what's good, and he said... When I allow, when I, when I don't choose to intervene in a way that gives you what you want, that that is actually what's best for you. How is it the best? I, again, I don't know. How is it the best? Sometimes we see it. Sometimes we realize it later on, looking back, saying, yeah, if, if God hadn't allowed these things, then I would be worse off now. But there are a lot of times where we never know and we never see. So... Again, it's all about faith, trusting in what he said about himself. And that's what these people here are doing. They, they actually believe. Like, they're not just, like, recounting facts and information. They truly believe that what is being said, and wha or sorry, what the book of the law said is true. They accept it. And they took responsibility for the actions of their ancestors, right? It's, it wasn't even them. Like, they weren't the ones that did these things. Like they, many of these, they were born in captivity and they were like, we have nothing to do with anything that has happened before. And they weren't even blaming their fathers or their, their parents for it. They were, they were like, yeah, we are sinners. Like we, we collectively together are sinners, you know, even if, um, we weren't the ones in the garden of Eden sinning, but I know myself that <laughs> it's just a matter of time, uh, that if I had the opportunity, I would sin. That's my nature, right? So we we didn't necessarily commit the specific sins like what the people are saying we didn't necessarily commit the sp specific sins but we are sinful by nature and we commit our own sins and so we are deserving of of punishment and yet god's mercy is what's bringing us back so the more we identify our own sinfulness and we see the mercy of god the more that we can have a healthy relationship with god and we see his love because he's offering us what we don't deserve Okay, we're almost done with chapter 9. Here we are, servants today, and the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it, and it yields much increase to the kings. You have set, uh, you have set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. Uh, distress. So he's saying here, he's, he's saying... Um, like, um, we are ha ha like our freedom has been taken from us, right? Because they were, uh, as an, as the nation of Israel, God wanted them to be free. He wanted them not to be enslaved to anyone, right? And so, but they're saying here we are servants. Like he, servants here is not meaning like servants of God. He's saying we are like the servants of other nations. We are enslaved by them because of the exile. They were enslaved. And the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty, like the land you've given us to live and to be free in and to enjoy its fruit, we are servants in it. We are under, um, we are, we are we are under the government now of the Syrian army, the Assyrian Empire. Sorry, um, and though it's yielding much fruit, who is it that is gaining that fruit now? It is the kings, right? It is it is not ourselves. We are we are not reaping the fruit for ourselves. We are paying the taxes to the Assyrians. We are um, an oppressed people, okay? Um, the kings you have set over us because of our sins, and we've brought this on ourselves, right? Because we despise the freedom that you had given us, and we chose to use our freedom to sin against you, and so now we have lost the freedom, right? Also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle. At their pleasure, we are in great distress. So spiritually, you can look at this, um, and interpret it in a spiritual way is that these kings right in a spiritual sense are like the passions they are the things that enslave us the things that keep us from enjoying our lives 
because we are addicted and enslaved to certain desires that we have that consume our thoughts, consume our minds and our hearts that make us always go back to, you know, there's a the, the, um, there's the verse in um, Proverbs that says, what, as a dog returns to his vomit, so like we, we return to our sins. Like, like, like we, are, we are going back to the sin, the same sins that we have committed. We go back to it again and again and again and again. Um, so that's what like these kings represent kind of spiritually. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. So this is a renewal, right? They are making a, a renewal of the covenant with God, a renewal of the obedience that they are seeking to obey God and submit to him because of his goodness, because of all that he has done. Um, they recognize the sin, uh, their sin. They recognize God's mercy. All these things recounting all throughout their history. And now they are ready to make a new start again, which is really a beautiful ending to this chapter because this is the goal of all that was done. You know, everything that Nehemiah did, it wasn't just to build a wall. It wasn't just to maintain the military strength of the nation. It wasn't just for political or economic reasons. It was ultimately for this, to make a place for the people to return to God again, right? And and this in this chapter, everybody gets it. Like in, in this chapter, everybody is aligned, everybody believes, everybody has the right attitude about it, and that's why it's a beautiful chapter, and that's why we see... Um, the fruit of all of the work that had been done was for this. And, and, and so like this returning of the people, not just physically, like from exile to Israel, but returning spiritually to God again is, is really what we, you know, what, 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 what the, the people are, are, are trying to do. Any questions or comments? Yeah. I wonder, can you please expound on, the fa on how to hate sin? Because you said... You brought out the um, the verse that says the as the dog goes to his vomit, the so does the sinner goes back to the sin. How do we um, teach ourselves to hate sin, because it's so um, pervasive in our lives? So we have to understand what the word hate means, right? What does it mean to hate something? Um, in the fullness of what it would mean to hate. It would mean that we would, all of us, all of uh, all of our person would be united together in one will. So, for instance, my mind would hate, my heart would hate, and my spirit would hate. What does it mean? So the spirit is what tells us what's right and wrong, right? So if my spirit is healthy, then that means the things that I identify as being right and the things I identify as being wrong are aligned with God. So, for instance, when God says such a thing is good and such a thing is evil, I'm in agreement with him. So if I have a healthy spirit, saying I am, I'm in agreement with God about what is right and wrong, then our mind, our mind is saying um, to hate something means that even though like, like I feel attracted to it, but my mind is telling me that, no, it is, it is, it is wrong for you to take action that will take you down this road of committing a certain sin because we've already agreed that this is wrong. Because it's wrong, you shouldn't follow the heart. The heart is the one that is pulling us emotionally towards something that is appeasing, appealing to the flesh. So to, to fully hate something means that your spirit, your mind, and your heart are all in alignment, hating or loving whatever it is. Okay, And if that is the case, then life would be a breeze. Right, like if if we if we were truly aligned that way about everything, then life would be so easy. Easy because at least we wouldn't have internal struggle. When it came time to pray, right, there would be no obstacle. Like there would be nothing in us saying, "I'm lazy, I'm tired, I don't want to do it. What's the point of it? How long has it been? Why?" Because even our heart, our emotions are energizing us to pray. Right, when it came time for forgiving our enemies we would forgive them fully from our hearts like we would feel true compassion and love and kindness toward them so it's not just my mind is saying you should do it no my heart is saying i want to do it my heart is just delight delighting in showing love and goodness to my enemies right but in reality we know that we are not all like our hearts are not necessarily sanctified to that degree to where our hearts and our minds are aligned with our spirits in that way. 
So, to, but I would say that the fullness of what the, to hate sin would be with all of them. Like where you look at sin and you find it disgusting. Okay, but let's say our heart is not yet sanctified, so it still desires sin. Okay, which I would say is maybe the case for most of us. Okay, um, at least my mind and my spirit can stand against it. So. Because I believe and I acknowledge that something is sin, my mind can say, okay, how can we prevent ourselves from doing it even though I am attracted to it, right? Like let's say someone is struggling with pornography, okay? And it's uh, a desire, right? There's a sexual desire. So their mind can say, okay, because I know that this is wrong, then I will choose to uh, do certain things or not do certain things to to prevent myself from being able to use it, right? Like I won't use my computer at night. I won't keep my phone in my room. I, I, I will install certain software to protect from this and that. I will find someone to be accountable with for this and that. Like there are things that I can do in order to protect myself simply because I have decided. It cha doesn't change anything about my heart. Like, maybe I still desire the sin. Maybe it's still something attractive to me. But at least I have chosen to align my life to avoid it as much as I can. And, and, and that is still very much accepted by God, actually, in a sense. That's even a greater, like, that's a, a greater um, war, you know, because, because it's difficult. You know, when my heart is aligned with my mind, Everything is easy. Like it takes no effort. Like like I everything that I do is just like um, doesn't require sacrifice. It doesn't involve any kind of pain or any kind of struggle, right? And that's why it's not realistic. Because in our life that is again full of brokenness, we ourselves are broken, and so my brokenness makes it so that I struggle to hate the things that God hates, and I struggle to love the things that God loves. And a big part of my spiritual struggle is to align myself with the God so that I truly avoid the things that he hates and hate the things that he hates. Now, over time, we, we, we hope and we pray that through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, we begin to be, be sanctified in a way to where I truly am disgusted by the things that God hates. And it's not just a principle that I am trying to apply only, but even my heart participates in it. Um, and so it's like we have to tame our hearts. We have to, to kind of mold our hearts and 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 conquer our hearts in order for us for us to be able to say that I am aligned in that way. Okay, okay that's all we have time for. Any final questions? Okay, we can pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Lord, for this day. We ask, O oh God, for your blessing in everything, and we thank you for the example you have given us in Nehemiah, and how the people, O oh Lord, turned their hearts and their minds to you after reading your law. We ask, O oh God, that you convict us of our sin, and help us to remember your mercy, and to know, O oh God, that you are reaching out to each one of us, and you, are, you seek that we would return again to you day by day by day, no matter what it is that we have done, or how many times we have fallen. We ask, O oh God, that you soften our hearts and give us hearts of repentance and to remember your mercy and your goodness. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And also with your spirit.